0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Richard J. Martin. He's the Clarence Hartley-Kovalt Distinguished Professor Um, at Iowa State. Uh, He's also uh, Dr. E.A. Benbrook Endowed Chair in Pathology and Parasitology. So we're going to talk about uh, parasites and drugs used to treat them. So, Rich, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm good, thank you. And thank you for the invitation, Rich. I appreciate that. Yeah,
1: I've spoken to a number of uh, parasitologists and people usually have their favorites that they focus on. So which parasites are you looking at uh, predominantly?
2: Uh, We work on filaria. These parasites are transmitted by biting insects, things like uh, mosquitoes, (coughs) black flies. Uh, They're uh, quite common, relatively common, in West Africa and parts of South America. The biting insects carry these tiny little microscopic worms, nematode parasites known as microfilaria, And when they transfer them in the bite to the uninfected person, the parasite, the microfilaria, starts to grow inside them. And it has, depending on its species, a number of predisposed sites where it'll end up. So there are different examples of the species of filaria. One of the very dramatic ones that people are trying to control and eradicate is Onchocerca volvulus. It's a, a name that's probably a bit difficult to remember. So a lot of people know it by river blindness. This is a, a shocking uh, condition that... Uh, where part of the parasite, the larvae, can end up in the cornea, that is the eye, and damage and uh, destroy the eyesight of the individual. The parasite lives, um, or the the worm, the black fly, lives by uh, the river. And so that's where the disease is seen, hence river blindness. That's one example. And... uh, Uh, There are other examples that are quite common in dogs. Uh, Most uh, veterinarians will treat and prevent, and owners will prevent, a condition known as heartworm. It's very common in uh, Louisiana and and the southwest of the U.S. And it's necessary to control that worm, Diophilaria imitis. So there is plenty of examples of these filarial worms. They may be different to... uh, some of your other guys that you've spoken to.
1: So of of the um, <clears throat> the worms that you study, which ones have the, I don't know, the most dramatic or unusual method of parasitism once they're in the host?
2: Well, they're, they're all a bit dramatic to me. Uh, you maybe remember the movie Aliens, do you? Uh, the idea oh, they burst the, out
1: of their I, chest, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. I, I, it's quite it's quite dramatic, and of course that movie was based on uh, some of the behaviours of these uh, parasites. They do get into places that uh, can cause quite disturbing changes in the body. Let's give you one example uh, of a, another filarial parasite. This is known as. Uh, posh name, lymphatic filariasis or elephantiasis. People who have this condition, again, predominantly in uh, uh, more uh, uh, deserted areas in, in, in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, they end up with these very distorted limbs uh, that are because the lymphatics, that's part of the drainage system of the, of the legs. Gets blocked and so they, they swell up. And uh, with a skin infection, they end up with legs that look like quite literally like elephants, and that's that's a very disturbing uh, condition. People who have that condition are become, as you can imagine, social outcasts, and, and it's really a sort of modern form of well I, I it's not the same disease but people are rejected socially and they I mean, find it very difficult to live it's a sort of equivalent if you like of leprosy so that's that's one very dramatic example there there are other uh, stories i mentioned river blindness <laughs> earlier go yeah, oh, for, you know,
1: for for the elephantitis, so uh, just a question so a person could have i've, I've seen some pictures of it they're massively swollen Legs or other parts, but the swelling is based on what the accumulation of lymph or what's in there. Like if people try to drain, you know, the swollen limb to see what's in there and what's there. Well,
2: well, what happens is it's part of the the normal circulation of the body. you, You probably are aware that you have arteries and veins, arteries coming from the heart, veins carrying the blood back to the heart. But in addition to that, you also have. Uh, what 's known as lymphatic vessels these are drainage systems for the extracellular fluid that is outside the um, outside of the of the body uh, sorry, I should say outside of the circulating system. And it returns the lymph to uh, the blood. But if you block that off, quite literally, the legs will swell up. I don't know whether you remember going to the dock and they might just squeeze sometimes odd places your neck or the back of your legs, uh, sometimes in your groin. And they're feeling for these what they call glands or lymph nodes. And that's part Mm -hmm. of that drainage system. You blocked myself
1: in my neck. Yeah. When I've been sick,
2: that's them, that's them. And that system, that system, uh, if it's blocked quite literally, uh, the, the part that's being drained blows up like a balloon. So that's the, uh, that's the lymphatic filariasis or the elephantiasis problem.
1: Well, for that parasite, does it, um, does it proliferate in the lymph? Is that like a preferred environment for it or where does it go?
2: Yeah, it, it, it lives and if you get recover them, they're, they're jiggling around and diving around. There's a male and a female and uh, they get together as, as all males and females do and they end up uh, reproducing. And they, the female lays, uh, li- releases these tiny little microscopic worms, microfilaria, into the blood. And they, they, that's what's picked up by the, uh, the biting fly that's transferred onto to the, the next host. Um, so they, that's where they prefer to live. And I, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but you, you, you could easily, if you come across these <laughs> parasites for the first time, you think, what on earth led them to end up there? And why do they of all places, want to go and live there. I can't answer that question. I, it's, it's something that's a mystery to all of us. Why do they choose these particular sites? But they do, and they become adapted to, to living there. I suppose it's... Well, well
1: in, that, in that particular disease, uh, once a person gets it, are insects then predisposed to bite them in those places that are swollen or no?
2: Oh, it's not the sites that are swat. It's anywhere. Um, the, the it turns out that that these microfilaria that are released by the adults in the lymph get right into uh, the uh, into the blood and circulate round the body. And they end up during the uh, feeding time of the insects, typically in the morning. They end up under the skin, and so that's where the next bite when it comes on, the little insect starts chewing away has a bite at the skin and it sucks up some fluid from uh, the human and uh, will take in this uh, next infection, the microfilaria and uh, this little worm, microfilaria matures in the insect and uh, when it's mature it's ready to be transferred to the next person, the next host
1: All these diseases—I've heard them called like neglected diseases. They affect, I guess, millions of people. But is there any in particular that has uh, interest and funding behind it, or are these unfortunately more curiosities, even though they're so dire?
2: i am just maybe missed part of your question. Are you saying? Are you asking who's interested in this? D- these diseases. Did did you say that?
1: Yeah, again, like, that... like the diseases you studied—they affect tons of people. what I understand, but is there funding and research and interest to try to combat?
2: Oh, yes. Um, There's a series of uh, um, sources of funding for looking at. One of the particular sources that's uh, driven is uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They have a particular interest, but they're very applied and they want I'm being unkind, but, but I, maybe I'm not. Uh, they want practical, as they call it, quick solutions. The NIH is uh, very interested in these uh, diseases, but it's prepared to take a longer-term uh, view about it. It's interested in basic biology, as well as development of drugs to solve the problem. So for for our lab, the NIH is a uh, a major funder uh, of this work. But here's an interesting point. One of the points that, I, if I can get across, I, I I find it fascinating, is that because these diseases are predominantly in, shall we say, in financially challenged countries, the economies of these countries is is pretty modest. Uh, the development of drugs for these primarily human conditions is not primarily for humans. It's actually for animals in the uh, Western world. The economic driver for uh, drug development is for uh, pet animals, valerial animals, Uh, I mentioned heartworm in dogs. That's the, uh, one of uh, the major uh, drivers for uh, commercial drug development, which is kind of surprising to me. You, you, normally, it's the other way around. You'd think that the human need or the human econ- economic benefits would drive the drug development, but it's not, ca- it's not the case for some of these neglected tropical diseases. And specifically here, uh, it, it turns out that uh, the new drugs, ivermectin, one classic drug, and it looks like emidepside, uh, a, a recently uh, a developed uh, a product, could be uh, go through phase two and phase three for human development. It's already used uh, in animals, uh, small animals, uh, pet animals, so that that's kind of a a, a topsy turvy um, economic situation. The idea,
1: yeah. I understand. Yeah. Do you, um do uh, these parasites you study these worms? Do they have viruses that that prey upon them?
2: That was, that. That is. Uh, I'm trying to do a bit of homework. Uh, you know, I wondered what sorts of question might come up. It is recognized that they these parasites. Uh, 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 there is evidence that they have uh, viruses. We don't know much about them and there hasn't been uh, an extensive or sufficient study. They are susceptible to bacterial infections and they do, bizarrely, these parasites have their own immune system. They're able to fight off uh, bacterial infections they have an innate immunity and it does some of these primitive immune responses that these worms have does overlap with our own uh, primitive immune systems that seems a bit odd wouldn't it i don't know whether you thought about that why should a parasite have an immune system but it does if you like this
0: podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes
1: Oh, in order to do its job, I mean, it also understands how to evade its host immune system in a lot of contexts. So, I guess it uh, has its own onboard knowledge and then it's uh, able to go further. And work and it, with its it, host.
2: Yeah, to extend that a little bit, it it's, has a nervous system. I like to kind of wind people up and say it actually has a brain. I think that maybe is going a bit too far, but it does have a nervous system and it can adapt. Uh, It it will respond to touch, it will detect chemical signals, and it will uh, detect places that are warmer and colder. So it uses its nervous system to search out its environment and find preferred locations. And uh, a number of experiments have demonstrated that it does have a primitive form of memory so if you want to exaggerate the story, you could say it actually has a brain, which is significantly more than a lot of viruses and bacteria. And, uh, it, it, it's possible because the genome is much, much larger than, uh, than bacteria.
1: Well, I mean, is there a latency once it affects a given host? Uh, is there a latency period before it uh, really takes effect?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Let's imagine you got bitten by uh, one of these black flies and that was carrying Onchocerca. It might well be uh, a, a number of weeks before you start feeling some irritation in your eyes and scratching at your eyes. So yes is the answer to, 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 to that. And jumping a little bit from the river blindness, which I was talking about then, to the lymphatic filariasis. Again, it's a matter of a cumulative infection. You can probably get away with uh, one or two uh, uh, parasite infections and not even notice it. But if you get several and it keeps building up, and for some unknown reason, some people react worse to the uh, parasite load than others. Some people can tolerate it and don't notice it, uh, but others react very badly and get these terrible reactions, it, it, itching skin. So it depends on the, the, uh, the individual that, that gets infected, but not instantly. And it takes, depending on the parasite, it can take several months, certainly for this elephantiasis uh, to build up uh, and become the observable condition
1: do the um, do the is it someone's infected with many many worms or is it just one worm that grows bigger and bigger in its condition no no
2: it, it's it's typically it's it's several worms, and the adult worm gets to a just like we do uh, it'll get to a uh, an adult size and it won't get any uh, any bigger. Uh, the, the infection that uh, occurs is often due to an accumulation of the number of parasites. And then these parasites, they, the other thing that you probably picked up from other folks that you've talked to, they live inside you or at the human host, and they have to tell the host, the human, look, don't attack me. They have to send out signals to the immune response. They have to control the host immune response, and they do it in quite marvellous ways. They can manipulate the immune system, inhibit the immune system, and so they, they, they secrete a number of active substances and depending on the individual The active substances can do the job and and, uh, uh, there's no reaction. Sometimes an individual will react to these substances that are released, a bit like venom from an insect bite. You start to react quite badly to it. So it it does depend uh, 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 on on what is released and the individual.
1: Well, the... um... I've heard some parasites you know put out extracellular vesicles and communicate with each other and they probably have some form of quorum sensing knowing when to uh you know start the next stage of their onslaught maybe that's why they wait and see so i mean it seems like there's a, a whole complement of sophisticated behaviors if, if that's correct right
2: yeah you you've got some good knowledge there rich that's quite a an exciting concept how do these characters sense the quorum and when uh, how do they limit and detect the the numbers of parasites there? How does the male find the female? The female sometimes with these uh, microfilaria, the the, uh, onchocerca, the female will live in nodules. How does the male find its way and and search them out and, and get there? It's quite some very interesting biology that that goes on. And like you say, they send out various signals. And one of these signals that's attracted recent uh, attention is, is just as you have mentioned, these extracellular vesicles that actually uh, send out molecular signals as well as chemical signals to the cellular environment, to the host environment, and and get the the cells to start behaving differently.
1: Oh, they're actually, uh, you're saying EVs from some of these worms are instructing our own cells to change behavior?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why I bring this up is, um, you know, we're looking for drugs to combat, you know, these worms. Because they're multicellular, perhaps they would be less adaptive in, let's say, a, a bacterial infection. And maybe if you interrupt their communication, or if you cause some other, you know, dysfunction to them, um, they won't be able to react as speedily, and you'll be able to kill them off or stop them communicating and proliferating.
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the nature of many of these parasite diseases—they are, uh, r- uh, by comparison. They are more controllable in the, shall we say, the Western world environment where you've got good sanitation and uh, and, and, and there are a number of drugs that are available, That not enough uh, drugs, but where you have poor sanitation, where uh, the vectors, that is these insects that transmit the disease, and where uh, toilet facilities are not uh, adequate, these parasites will persist. For example, the, the dog heartworm, that persists here in the US despite probably reasonable sanitation controlled by the, the pet owners, but you only need a few wild dogs and uh, a few uh, 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 biting insects to transmit the, the, the disease and it becomes very difficult to control. So in theory, yes, uh, you should be able to break the cycle and, and uh, control these diseases, but in a, an economically challenged environment that doesn't actually happen and so that's the challenge. Can you uh, limit the number of uh, infected people with drugs, can you control the disease by typically once a year drug administration, that's called MDA, Mass Drug Administration. So if, I, if you and I were living in parts of, of Africa, we might take one of these uh, anti-parasitic drugs that we, we work on and are interested in, we might take those once or perhaps twice a year and that would be sufficient to keep the parasites under control.
1: Um, I mean, an even more difficult question probably is, do you know if there's any microbiome associated with these parasites? Like, you know, someone that has, let's say, this elephantitis condition, if you're able to aspirate a bunch of fluid, you've got, you know, a bunch of worms, t- are you are able to then, uh, you know, do shotgun sequencing and see if there's a microbiome? or uh, I, that's
2: not what what uh, what we do know, and quite a number of people i've've seen this on uh, a number of of grant applications. It's not something we do, but uh, a lot of parasites, most commonly uh, are what they call soil transmitted uh, helmets, sths, soil transmitted helmets. They're transmitted by uh, the uh, fecal-oral route, fecal-oral route. And living in the uh, intestine, in the gut, secreting these various substances that we've talked about, they do alter the microbiome and microbiota do change. And it's interesting to see uh, what those changes are I'm not, it's not my area of research. Uh, and it is an interesting area that's been somewhat expanded uh, recently with this uh, fascination with the effect of the microbiota on the human health.
1: So what what big questions are you trying to answer about uh, these, these helmets in general?
2: Well, I, I would claim that one of my uh, background uh, interests and trainings as, as I, I started off as a, a veterinarian and seeing lots of parasites in, in, in animals. And I, I became interested in, uh, in drugs, uh, you know, this idea that you can, uh, can cure diseases with a, a, a drug. Uh, maybe people have got used to it, but the concept is and uh, uh, and was originally the idea of searching for this quotes magic bullet that could cure somehow this drug you would take this chemical compound swallow it and somehow it would find this disease in your body and deal with the problem this magic bullet and this is what we've been interested in can you find a magic bullet to cure these diseases very effectively, you're probably aware that there's no such thing as a perfect drug. There's always a risk benefit. One of the challenges is, is if you use a drug w- repeatedly for any disease, it, even, even cancer Uh, eventually you will get the development of resistance. And so that's one of the issues that that fascinates us. How do these parasites develop resistance? Can we design some new drugs that are resistance busting? And that's what drives our work. How do these drugs work? How do we prevent the development of resistance. And that, that's the agenda that, that, that's that been driving our work as pharmacologists and uh, int, uh, parasitologists interested in, in finding better and improved cures for these rather unpleasant conditions.
1: So um, are there any particular um, worm-based diseases that are far worse than others? or one that you think really there's an order to fixing them or attacking them with drugs? What's the, the one that's most in need?
2: I, 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 I suppose I'm trying not to avoid a, a sort of game on that because if you've got any disease, uh, uh, for you as an individual, that particular disease is the most serious, but how does, how do you quantify the seriousness of an infection? Do you measure the number of human deaths per year or do you measure the lost uh, economic effects? In other words, let's supposing you had a a parasite that uh, stopped people from working, It, it, it made them feel uncomfortable so that they instead of working a full year, uh, they only worked maybe once a year, but it had a massive influence on the whole population. Would that be considered worse than a, a disease or a parasite that would kill off, well, literally kill only a few people? Which one is the most serious? And so you have these debates about what is actually the most serious we have this uh phrase the uh and i'd be lucky if i can remember what is it's dailies it's something like the distributed annual loss yearly it count, you count up the number of uh, of lost productivity of a, an individual and some worms like uh, the gastrointestinal worms some worms like ascaris they may not uh, the mortality may not be high but because of the morbidity the number of people affected it's it's more serious so i guess i'm 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 saying to you it depends on the criteria that, that you use what is uh, the most serious we think we think that that the lost productivity on a very very large number of people through these diseases and the social rejection should be weighted more heavily than just counting the number of people that uh, that, that lose their lives. So conditions like filariasis, uh, uh, the, the river blindness, and and the lymphatic filariasis, and ascariasis, we think uh, all of these are serious. Problems, and if you can find a, a drug that actually can treat and prevent all of these with the MDA treatment once a year, then then actually everybody's a winner. So I, rather than speak a specific, you, you want to find a drug that actually affects all of these. It would be nice if you can. Well, very
1: good. Um... Any breakthroughs that you see um, in terms of understanding, like are people looking at, for instance you know viruses associated with parasites or like where do you think the uh, the big breakthroughs will come, or is it just slow, steady progress and understanding
2: I, I wish I could uh, promise breakthroughs, but I, I think it's part of my I hope I can communicate some enthusiasm for the subject, and I think they're they're intermittent breakthroughs that uh, c- come along they're not necessarily absolute cures but they're advances in technology that allow you to improve the uh, the, the treatments there is this this problem of parasites uh, is a uh, very often it's a political and social issue that needs to be dealt with and i think the big breakthroughs will come from an improved political environment. I don't mean Democrat versus Republican. I mean uh, good constitutional government, good uh, proper government will help a lot of these, uh, these conditions. But it would be nice if we can get a much better drug that uh, can uh, can take us forward. And there is the possibility of one of the drugs that, that, that we are working on, emidepside, uh, will prove satisfactory. It's going through phase uh, two and hopefully get to phase three uh, for the treatment of filariasis. And if, we, uh, if the DNDI get that, uh, licensing and it proves effective and safe for humans, then I would say, yes, that's a, a big breakthrough because it'll be able to help us control this disease much more quickly, the filariasis disease, much more quickly. So that's one of the yeah. positives I see. A breakthrough is getting uh, uh, an effective drug uh, accepted for human treatment. Yeah,
1: I have a question that just came to mind. Um, you know, imagining worms in the soil and, I mean, mostly in soils um, because at least some of them are in soils. Are they in contact with, um, you know, mycorrhizae and, and fungi? And has anyone looked at the association of worms and and fungi? Like perhaps they're, um, I don't know, they're predisposed to attacks by them. Perhaps they have a commensal relationship with them just because they're in and around them a lot, it seems like, in the, at least in their initial environment.
2: Yeah, have you, I, I'm just uh, asking you now, have you come across, or, uh, and folks you've spoken to, call uh, uh, things called nematophagous fungi? Have you heard of those? They, oh they, no,
1: those are what, fungi that infect uh, worms?
2: Well, I don't know about infect them, they eat them. Um, oh, wow. um, they they're rather interesting uh, characters uh, and I, I came across them uh, when um, when I had a, a, a contacts uh, with the Danish uh, parasitologists and it's interesting to see how uh, the, the shall we say the more understandably green culture in Denmark, they didn't want to use drugs to control parasites as much. And so what they found out, they they developed this uh, uh, preparation for uh, feeding horses these nematophagous fungi. And what happens is, this was an experimental system that worked, you, you feed the preparation to uh, this was to actually the horses that that were under under test, and when the parasites, the larvae, the little wriggly worms, are hatch out in the uh, sort of in the grass and in the feces, they do so with these at the same time as these nematophagous fungi that have also been fed to the horse. And these things, you you tap it in on your Google and what you'll see, these uh, quite uh, 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 sort of exciting to watch, they throw loops, these little fungi, little hyphae, and there's a sort of trigger. And when the worm wriggles into uh, this little hoop, it traps it, it it, uh, squeezes itself and, and will kill off the uh, the the infectious larvae or the larvae that are growing to the next stage. So the simple answer is yes, there is a relationship between uh, a, a biology and a continuous warfare between these uh, uh, nematodes that live in the soil and the various uh, uh, various fungi that that are found. And just this, so
1: the, these like lasso them and strangle yeah, them. yeah,
2: yeah. Wow. yeah. Huh. Yeah, and uh, uh, another comment, just a wave of enthusiasm here, that one of the very important uh, um, drugs that was discovered by Bill Campbell, he ended up with a, a Nobel Prize, was a drug called Ivermectin. And it comes from uh, Streptomyces avermitilis. Streptomyces avermitilis, which is a sort of fungal organism that grows in the soil. And it was found uh, by uh, his Japanese collaborator uh, in, uh, and recovered from a, um, a golf course in uh, in Japan near, near the fence. And so the pair of them ended up isolating and producing uh, ivermectin, which has become Uh, really the gold standard so that came from uh, fungal soil samples so the answer is yes absolutely rich that's definitely the case and some fungi definitely have got it in for worms and and parasites and they make these very effective substances that will kill off the worms the trick is to find a substance that kill the worms without killing the host and that's the hard thing uh, to find a selective killer.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Hmm. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research?
2: Well, we, uh, you're very welcome to uh, Google Richard J. Martin. Uh, I'm at Iowa State. We uh, keep all our research on ResearchGate. You can get a copy of, of, of that or if somebody sent me an email, uh, we're quite happy to get people interested in it. One of the things that I appreciate by, about this opportunity, we are very keen to see if we can increase the uh, interest in this general area. So if you're interested in our uh, research, just type my name in and, and research gate, you can see all the, the uh, papers there or contact anyone at Iowa State University. But I, I really want to just thank you for, for taking the time to uh, show an interest in our field and actually helping the uh, the audiences to uh, find out a little bit more about these parasites because I think they are fascinating creatures. And I, I wish we could somehow get more visual material over to the public because I think they'd find them after they got over the sort of perhaps scary bit like the aliens are coming to get them. I think they'd find them absolutely fascinating. They are a world apart and they do things that nobody would dream of.
1: Well uh, one, one thing, last question I was about to let you go but so because they're somewhat macroscopic you know much more so than a virus and I guess light microscopy could probably pick them up. Have uh, scientists made movies of a parasite infecting, you know, a worm, uh, interacting with a cell or infecting a cell or gaining entry?
2: They're, they're only scientific ones, but I, I think it, it it would be you know it would be quite fun to uh, make a documentary or even two or three documentaries on the different parasites to show. You know how, what the marvelous techniques, I only know were various examples, folks like David Attenborough could actually go beyond just looking at gross uh, animals or big animals, they could actually start looking at these other organisms and there's a whole new world to look at and see what these guys get up to and how they get around their life cycle. It's 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 a fascinating story, and yes, I think it would make quite gripping TV or a movie. No matter, you need a skill to be able to know what the public wants and and where to take it. But that kind of uh, thing would be rather exciting uh, to see. I think the public would, in fact, I know the public would be fascinated by it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Richard, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. It's been a good call.
2: Thank you for taking the time. Uh, My best wishes. And I'm sure you'll get back to me if you want more.
0: (laughs) If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.